Now, could I encourage you this morning to turn to Philippians chapter 3? Philippians chapter 3. Now, for those who are visiting with us today, we have, for many weeks now, we have been slowly working our way through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And um, we've been expounding um, various texts and portions as we've went along. And I'm trying to come to a conclusion maybe next week uh, on Philippians chapter 3. We'll probably not start Philippians 4 until the new year, but uh, at least if we could get to the end of chapter 3, that will be a good marker for us. So Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to commence reading today from verse 15. Philippians chapter 3, verse 15. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Remember, we're reading from the authorized version. Philippians chapter 3, verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, where too we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now, my text this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. The Word of God says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Now, my theme today is exposing false professors in the church. Now, remember the context. The Apostle Paul is in a prison cell at Rome. He's chained to two guards 24-7. He's under a sentence of death. That sentence could be carried out at any time, and his earthly life would be over. And yet despite those circumstances and that situation, he isn't sitting in that cell thinking of himself. He's not having a pity party. He's not saying, poor me. He's thinking of the church at Philippi, a church that under God he helped found. And he knows in his heart, because he's heard reports, what that church is facing. It's facing the error of legalism, there's those that have come into the church and say you need Christ, but you also need Christ plus something more. Christ's not enough for salvation. You, you need this right of circumcision 
or you need the law of Moses, or you need to belong to this religious grouping. He knows they're also facing the error of perfectionism. There's those who have come into the church and saying, it's great to be a Christian, glad to be saved. But you know, the Christian could reach a state of perfection. He could be brought onto a plane where he would never ever sin in thought and word and deed against the Lord. A kind of spiritual utopia. Another error that the church at Philippi was facing was antinomianism. That is against the law. Anti is against. Um, nomianism comes from the uh, noun um, nomos, the law. Against the law. And, and there was those that came into the church saying, you know, now we're saved. Uh, we're not under the condemnation of the law anymore. But better than that, we're not under the code of the law. We don't need the law of God to live by as a standard of right living. So here's Paul and he's in prison and he hears about these errors that have come into the church at Philippi and out of godly concern and out of interest for their spiritual well-being, he writes to encourage them. He wants them to press on with God. He wants them to make progress. He wants them to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. He wants them to anticipate the prize before them. He wants them to be like-minded and walk by the same rule. Remember, right believing leads to right living. Scriptural belief impacts upon scriptural behavior. And as he continues to counsel and encourage them, he, he urges them, as we saw last week in closing, to follow his example. The example of Epaphroditus. The example of Timothy. The example of other good men. And he wants the church to mark them. And that word mark there means to take note of them. Take note of the good examples and follow that hard. And then he warns them of bad examples. Look at verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and I tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. You see, the Apostle Paul is alarmed at the spiritual declension that's going on in Philippi. He's well aware of the inroads of apostasy in the church led by these certain enemies. So he has to issue this very plain, clear, stark, serious warning. You see, the Apostle Paul is not a, a career preacher. He's not in the church for a living. He's not a mere cream puff pie preacher of whom the late Dr. Paisley used to talk about. He's not aloof from this congregation. He certainly never goes over their head. He is conscious of the activity of the enemy, and so as a wise and faithful minister, while he issues words of encouragement and help for God's people, he must also issue a word of warning. He's really sounding an alarm. Certain men, false professors, are in the church at Philippi. And how does he describe them? Well, if you look at verse 18, he says that they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. And what he's saying is, don't imitate these men. 
Don't follow them. Don't try to be like them. Certainly don't entertain and encourage these men because they're not really true followers of Christ. Now that's the context to these words. Notice if you look at verse 18 and verse 19 very carefully, I want you to think of four things. I want you to think of the sad fact of false professors in the church. For many walk of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping. You see, facts are stubborn things. And here's a sad fact. In the first century church at Philippi, a church that was experiencing three errors that had come in through the door, legalism, perfectionism, and antinomianism, and and these three errors had been brought in and encouraged by false professors. I want you to think of their place. Where were these false professors found? In the church. You see, they were professing to be worshippers in the pew. I, I don't believe that they were outright militant atheists saying no God, denying his existence and, and living in rebellion to him. I, I'm not even sure that they were rank apostates at this time. But I do believe and think that these false professors were active in the church at Philippi. They were looked upon as outstanding Christians. These were the great churchmen of the day. Men who rose, I believe, to a position of prominence in the church. Leaders of the people. And they mingled there with God's people. And they spoke the language and they talked the talk. And they had a certain walk, for for Paul says, for many walk. And and the word walk has to do with their manner of living, their their lifestyle. So, So think of their language, think of their lifestyle in the church. Not only their place, but think of their prominence. Many. How many's many? Well, we don't know. But we could say quite a number. Certainly more than two. Some of the commentators have suggested a multitude. Here was a big problem in the church. These men had crept in. They had infiltrated the church. They came in with their errors. And they had the potential to deceive and to destroy many in the church. The impact and the influence of their lifestyle was real. Think of that word walk. Has to do, as I've said, with their manner of living, their lifestyle. Think of their presence. Not only the place and the prominence, but think of their their presence, of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping. You see, this was a great grief to the Apostle Paul. Paul endured much in his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 onwards. Think about the fact that he was stoned, scourged, shipwrecked. Think if he was slandered. Here he is sentenced to death in this jailhouse in Rome. But he didn't weep over these matters. It wasn't reduce him to tears. But in light of the impact of the false professors having in the church at Philippi, he warns them with weeping. He's well aware of the danger they pose to themselves. To others in the church. To the cause of Christ. to, To the gospel itself. And it's breaking his heart. 
It's a big weight on his mind. You see, this was a genuine matter to him. And he had repeated the warning. Look at the text. It says, for many walk of him I've told you often. Told often. It's not the first time he sought to expose these false teachers. One warning for Paul was not enough. Here he is sounding the alarm again. And again, he's faithfully and and, and fearlessly acting like a watcher in the wall. The enemy has come. It's on the gate. It's climbing the wall. It's already inside. And, And he's sounding the alarm. Now notice their practice. Look at the word walk. As I've said, it means lifestyle, their manner of living. These people were were not thinking right. And therefore they were not living right. They were certainly not living out their life as we saw last week according to the gospel. They were living for self, for for sinful pleasures. And here's this church at Philippi. and, And it's being led astray. It's being affected by a bad example. I want you to think of this little story. There was a man in the train. He was sitting smoking, big cigar, blowing smoke all around him. He's drinking from a whiskey flask. He's using a lot of bad language. He's a big coat on. He ticks it off and he puts it on. He ticks it off and puts it on. And he sits there and it's a long journey. And people are watching him. Nobody talks to him. And whenever he's getting off the train, one woman said, Excuse me, sir, you've left something behind. Left nothing behind. I've got my coat. I've got my fags in my pocket or my cigar. And I've got my whiskey flask. What did I leave behind? And she said, you left behind your influence. Your influence. And that's what these men were doing. They were leaving an influence, an impression on the church. And you know, the sad reality is, if a preacher today warns individuals of ungodly friends... Or warns of following ungodly trends. Or going after ungodly movements and practices. Warns of the danger of heresy and error and false teaching. Some would say, well, he's doing his duty. Others would castigate him and say he's unloving. And he's not being gracious. And he's being judgmental. And, and, and his intervention is unnecessary. You better leave well alone because you're just upsetting people. You're, you're just annoying people. But God's people are being affected. God's people are being influenced. And it's really sin. It, it, it's, it's worldliness. It, it's contrary to practical holiness. And what's the preacher to do whenever he sees church leaders Out of touch with the rank and file. Failing to answer certain questions. Behaving in a way that's living contrary to the gospel. What does he see? What does he say? Well surely he has a duty to speak up fearlessly and faithfully. And say this is wrong. See we we live in a day when many who profess the name of Christ. Have a greater love for the world. Rather than for the word of God. See, a love for many things. But where's the love for the master? Where's the call to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength? Don't don't we see a push today in the so-called Christian church to embrace Christian liberty? But, But people are really asking for a license to sin. Let the professing church 
get drunk. Let them have a right to abortion. Let's call for same-sex marriage to be introduced in the country. What about Sabbath breaking? And surely all that's shocking. And surely it's all sad. You see, we live in a day when many want the church without Christ as the head of the church. They want religion, but they don't want repentance. We, 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 we live in a day of deception. A day of the lack of discernment. And we live in a day when there's the presence of false teachers and false professors who have a name to live but are in actual fact dead. And we have to say these false teachers and these false professors, they're not born again of the Spirit of God. They may have a load of formality, but they have no true, real saving faith in Christ. Remember, true saving faith is evidenced by works. They might appear right. They might sound good and pious, but their heart is not right before God. They have no heart relationship with the Lord. They're not good examples. The sad fact of false professors in the church. Notice secondly and quickly, the serious focus of the false professor. Look what Paul says in verse 18, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Here's how Paul describes them. Enemies of the cross of Christ. Now the word enemies means a hitter or hateful. It's used 32 times in the New Testament. Literally, haters of the cross of Christ. Now the idea is that they are opposing Christ in their heart and in their mind. The context is, Paul's already talked and we dealt with this last week, the mind of the Christian. What a Christian thinks determines how he behaves. And we're called to be like-minded. We're called to think through and think out the gospel so that we can live it out. But, but, but these people are, are enemies of the cross. They're haters of Christ and his cross work. And they are of a different mind. And they, they have not the view the gospel in the same way that we do. They really hold the cross in contempt. They hold Christ in contempt. They hate the doctrine of the cross. They're, they're haters of Christ and the cross in their mind. As I've said, they hold the cross in contempt. They're pretending all is well. They use acceptable language. They carry themselves before men, but all the while in their mind and, and in their heart, they're enemies of the cross. Now, that's nothing to do with the shape of the cross. It's nothing to do with making the sign of the cross. It's nothing to do with wearing the symbol of the cross. Nothing even to do with the substance of the cross, the wood that it's made from. Though in their heart and mind, it's not the shape or the sign or the symbol or the substance, but in their heart and mind, they hate the doctrine of the cross. They hate the work of Christ on the cross. They, they despise the work of Christ on the cross. They refuse the necessity of the cross. They have no time for the doctrine of atonement. They deny that Christ died to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself to reconcile sinners to God. They refuse to believe in the blood atonement, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. They, they, they deny that. They accept that he died. But why did he die? Oh, well, we have a different opinion. He died to show us the love of God. The, the martyr theory, other theories. False professors believe that 
There's another way to be saved. God can and does deal with sin differently apart from the cross work of Christ. We can bypass the cross. They were really saying in their mind, I don't need the cross. It's a nice idea. It's a good concept. But there are other ways of being saved. So they deny the imputation of our sin to Christ. They deny the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. The righteousness of God to the sinner's account by faith. They refuse to believe in the finality of the cross. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. Their attitude is the cross work of Christ ought to be repeated. And of course that ties into the doctrine of Roman Catholicism and their belief about the repetition of the mass as a sacrifice for sin. They refuse the sufficiency of the cross. Christ works not enough. Yes, you need salvation. But in order to attain salvation, you need Christ plus something else. You need the law. You need circumcision. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to be part of this body. Remember Paul's already said in chapter 3, verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. And, and, and to, to highlight that, he gave his testimony, how he lived before conversion. His race, his right, his religion, his respectability, how he was converted, how he was arrested by Christ in the Damascus Road, and what happened afterwards, how he had a longing in his heart to press toward the prize for the high calling in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't add his race or his religion, or the right of circumcision, or his respectability to Christ. He, 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 he de- denied th- these things were necessary. He repudiated these things. He repented of these things in order that he might win Christ. And to, 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 to add to Christ's work is to deny the suffering of the cross. He also refused the vitality of the cross. Think of living out the Christian life day by day. Think of the victory of the cross. Think of the words, victory in Jesus, victory over sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin will not control you. But here in the life of the false professor, they were saying, well, our power to live out the Christian life is nothing to do with the cross. There's no connection between Christ and the life of a Christian. Well, that's not our bumpkin. That's a real lie from the devil. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 and 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a connection between the Christian life and the cross of Christ. Galatians 6 and 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. You see, those in Christ, they have died to sin in Christ. Sin no longer controls them. They no longer live in sin. They have a new principle in them. They have crucified the flesh. They abstain from worldly things that war in their soul. And that's why, in a voluntary way, by the grace of God, we as God's people don't use cursing or foul language we're not giving to drunkenness or, or, or smoking or, or gambling or going to dances or wild parties. Why? Because we're in Christ now. And we have a new love and we have a new life. 
And we have a loyalty to Christ. And the Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. And, and the Christian now hates sin and loves righteousness. You see, these guys wanted a Christ without a cross. They want a faith without a foundation. They want to go to heaven, but it's without holiness. When I, when I think of the cross, I, I think of a place of love. The love of God is seen there. I think of a place of sacrifice, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. I think of a place of holiness, where God's justice is seen, how he dealt with sin, God's wisdom, God's wrath is seen. Remember, God hates sin. I think of the cross as a place of hope. For someone can kneel down by faith and cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. How could they hate the cross of Christ? How could they deny its necessity, its finality, its sufficiency, its vitality? Now let me ask this morning, does this describe you? Do you hold the cross in contempt in your mind? Have you bad thoughts about the cross work of Christ? Think of rejecting Christ in his cross work. It's truly that these false professors have never repented. They've never cast their all upon him. They never recognize that he alone is sufficient for all that they need. And that this day is the very serious focus of the false professor. Notice thirdly and quickly, the sinful features of the false professor. Look at verse 19. You see, what they believe, the contempt of Christ and the cross in their mind, affects their behavior whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and who glory in their shame, who mind earthly things. Now, now, how do they live? How do they walk? Well, here's one of the features. They live sensuously, whose God is their belly. Now, now that hasn't just to do with eating in a gluttonous manner. But it's more than that. It means they live for self. They live with the lust of the eyes in their mind. The lust of the flesh, all their hearts desire. The pride of life. They have a desire to follow after sinful pleasures. And the Bible says, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And what's the biggest danger today affecting the free Presbyterian Church of Ulster? I put it to you that one of them at least, high up on the list, is worldliness. People that could name the name of Christ and yet still do their own thing. Think about the Lord's Day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, but, but they're out on Saturday night. Maybe they're, they're, they're in some place where they ought not to be, with some ungodly friends that they ought not to be. And then when it comes to the Lord's Day morning, they have difficulty getting up for the house of God. See, living for themselves, living for pleasure, rather than living for Christ. They, they live sensuously. Notice also, they live shamefully. It says, if you look at our text, whose glory is in their shame. Notice the word whose is in italics. It literally reads, and glory in their shame. In other words, they're boastful and they're happy. I'm glad there's no blushing here. 
They're proud in their achievements, proud in their ambitions, proud in their accomplishments, proud in their activity. God's glory is denied. Man's chief end remembers to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And you think of this for just an illustration. Remember when the House of Commons some time ago passed the uh, legislation for same-sex marriage. Uh, And it was boasted that this was the greatest piece of legislation in modern history in the Houses of Parliament. And a cheer went up. You think whenever they voted for abortion and demand and the doyle and the celebration and jubilation there. You see, they live shamefully. They glory in their shame. And also they live stupidly. If you look at the end of the text in verse 19, it says, who mind earthly things. And that's the key. Mind earthly things. Their mind is on their lifestyle. Not the Lord. They're living for time, not for eternity. They live for their self, not the Savior. And Paul tears the mask off. And here he is, and he's exposing them in the church. I heard a story about a minister who ministered in three different churches. That This minister led the worship every Lord's Day. He preached the word of God in the morning and at night. Although I, I don't know what he preached. But after the third ministry, he acknowledged to another individual that he was living a life of hypocrisy. That he was going through the motions. That he didn't really love the Lord. And he didn't love his Bible. And he didn't relish a prayer meeting. And he didn't relish a worship service. And it was just a job to him. And he was being paid really to be a professional. And you know the Spirit of God came and convicted him. And convinced him that his heart was not right. And he needed to repent and get right before the Lord. And that's exactly what that man did. And what a difference it made. Because he was no longer living for self. He was now living for the Savior. And he had a purpose in getting up into the pulpit on a Sunday morning. He was there, he believed, to the glory of God. I want to ask the question this morning. Are you a professor or a possessor? We have many young people growing up in the Free Presbyterian Church and they've made a profession as a child. And I don't despise that. I believe that children can be saved and have been saved. And we think of Dr. Paisley converted at the age of six and what a great man of God he was in his day and generation. But I want to ask the question, are you a professor or a possessor? Because is is this text... Revealing what you're like. You profess to be saved, but there's been no real change in your life. You live sensuously, you live shamefully, you live stupidly because your mind is in earthly things, and you're like this minister. You, you, you have no desire for the prayer meeting. You're really ever prayed in your life, either privately or publicly. When it comes to the Word of God and the preaching of that Word, Maybe you're sitting in church and you're looking at your phone. Or your mind is elsewhere and you never ever read the Bible in your private home. The Bible says, blessed is he that readeth. And what about holiness? 
Well, you have no interest in denying self. You have no interest in spiritual things. And when it comes down to sin, you can make an excuse and you do the things that are sensual. And you do the things that are shameless. And you're not living or no desire to live a godly life. So I have to ask this morning, and I'm pressing at home, are you among the number? Does it describe you if you're here this morning or listening on the internet? Here's the sinful features of the false professor. Now, if one final thing, and my time is gone, but just notice this, the solemn finality of the false professor whose end is destruction. What does that mean? Some commentators mean that it's to do with their aim, that they're, they're trying to destroy others. That's why they've come into the church, trying to undermine the gospel and the testimony of Christ. But I believe it's more than that. I think, I believe the Apostle Paul is dealing with the false professors themselves. Not merely thinking about their aim and, and their, their, their game plan, but, but he's thinking about their own end. They're facing destruction. They're living a lie. They're pretending. But one day they'll be found out. They've been found out now by the Apostle Paul because he's exposing them. And he's writing to this church at Philippi. Don't follow their example. They're going to be found out at the end. Would not be tragic. Would not be terrible. Think of these words. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, how the Lord Jesus closed that sermon? Matthew chapter 7. Remember what he says. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. That's their profession. They're telling the Lord, this is the last day for which all our days are made. This is, they're standing before him. They're saying to him, this is the basis upon which we should get into heaven. Look at verse 23, or listen to it. Matthew 7, 23. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Think of the connection. We know that God is merciful. But imagine being told, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The solemn finality of the false professor whose end is destruction. Are you guilty of play acting? Are you living a life of emptiness? Are you living a lie where you have no real peace nor rest? No, no reality of Christ? No, no joy in the Lord? Is this what awaits you? Being found out in the day of judgment as you stand before Christ? I fear that. That he would ever say to me, I never knew you, ye that work iniquity. I pray the Lord will make us haters of sin and a lover of righteousness. And give us the assurance that we're not professors, but we're genuine possessors. May the Lord bless you this morning. Thank you for listening. May the Lord take these few stumbling words and bless them to us.